0: Welcome to What About Us, a podcast that looks at how policies affect rural Tennesseans. My name is Sandy Rice and I live in rural Tennessee. This is our second season and the topics are coming fast and furious. With the coronavirus or COVID-19 filling our thoughts and fears every day, I couldn't help thinking about doing a podcast on viruses from a different standpoint. The viruses, well, sort of. I don't want to take the place of the CDC with their guidelines for cleaning, isolation, hand washing, social distancing, and numbers of cases, etc. But what viruses are, how do we get them? How do they harm us? Uh, Why are some more dangerous than others and how we fight them? My neighbor, Dr. John Palisano, is a biologist and has researched viruses. So we are going to discuss uh, some famous or infamous viruses, including the cold, Influenza, maybe HIV, um, SARS, and SARS CoV 2, which is another, uh, which causes the illness COVID 19. Hello, neighbor. Hello. (laughs) Dr. Palisano, welcome and thank you so much for sharing with us. Uh, John is a cell biologist who ran the virology laboratory in a 500 bed hospital in Cleveland, Ohio after obtaining his PhD. In addition to isolating human viruses and doing viral antibody tests on patients for many of the hospitals in Cleveland, including St. Luke's Hospital, Cleveland Clinic, and University Hospitals of Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, he taught a short course in virology to the first and second year medical students. For the last 22 years, he has taught microbiology and immunology at Swani, the University of the South. Um, thank you so much for sitting down f- about four feet away from me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're welcome.
0: So viruses cause illnesses or infections. Uh, what is a virus?
1: Okay, a virus is a small <clears throat> particle, and I call it a particle because I don't consider them living, that can't be seen through a regular light microscope. It takes an electron microscope to visualize them. And... Viruses are devoid of all the metabolic machinery necessary to maintain life, so they have to infect a living host cell. Hence, all viruses are uh, intercellular parasites. Mm-hmm. There are two major types of viruses. They either have RNA or DNA, but never both. Remind us what RNA and DNA okay. are. Okay. DNA first, because it's the most commonly known one, is the molecule in all living cells that carries the genetic material that's passed on from one generation to the next in offspring. RNA is the molecule that reads the DNA so that you can make the proteins which are necessary to sustain the life, because all enzymes are proteins, well. There's a few RNA ones, so I'll try not to get too nitpicky and keep making <laughs> modifications of qualifications of what I say, but basically, they're the ones that carry the information from the they're DNA. messengers, Right. Mm-hmm. Messengers, transfer RNA, and ribosomal RNA, so you can make proteins. And with those proteins, you make all the other molecules in the cell, including DNA, by the way. Okay. 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 And so they have either RNA or DNA, but never both. Okay. Now, because they're intercellular parasites, they have to have a way to get in, and I'll cover that in just a few minutes. But some viruses are also surrounded by a lipid envelope, and others are not. And it turns out coronavirus is a lipid-surrounded virus, and that works out to our advantage because it makes them more susceptible to things that can inactivate them, in the environment and one of the big inactivators is soap which Mm -hmm. is why you'll find out that hand washing is so critical to keep it from spreading and again we'll get into that a little bit more later too. Now the virus that we're talking about today though is SARS-CoV-2 which causes COVID-19 infections and it's easy to just say the coronavirus infection but if you do then you don't know if you're talking about all the other infections caused by coronaviruses and the two that most people are familiar with is SARS and MERS and we'll get to those a little later too. And
0: the, it's called a coronavirus because it looks like a crown.
1: Right. And it's, The thing
0: sticking it, out and any
1: of virus it. that looks like that and has only RNA and lipid envelope becomes a family of viruses just like all the herpes viruses are in mm-hmm. the herpes family, mm-hmm. and the only thing they have in common is their size. They have a lipid envelope around them, but they contain DNA, not RNA, as their main genetic component. Uh, so coronavirus. And this is, is like the cold sore. Right, cold sore is the most commonly known one, but chickenpox is right. another one. Cytomegalic virus, which some people don't know, but it's called CMV, is another. Mm-hmm. And there, since I left the virology field. There's about eight different herpes viruses. When I was in it, there were only four. Mm -hmm. Herpes one and two, Mm -hmm. CMV, and chickenpox. So as we find more and more particles that look similar, we just add them to the same family. Mm -hmm. But the family is not the same thing as what we think of when we talk about living things. It's based solely on physical characteristics for the families and viruses. Okay, okay.
0: So um, how does it spread?
1: Okay. The major way that coronavirus is spread since it's a respiratory virus is through droplets and usually those droplets are produced when someone sneezes or coughs. It's not the only way. As a matter of fact, I heard on TV today one woman sent in a message, can I kiss my husband? And the answer is yes you can, there's no law against it. We were, and. The doctor that was answering didn't answer it the way I used to answer questions like this, so I'll just throw it out to you. But I was talking about getting Epstein-Barr virus, which, is by the way, is another herpes virus, or it causes kissing disease or mononucleosis. Mono. Uh-huh. No one in their right mind, I hope, would kiss someone if they knew they were infected. The problem is with almost every virus we know that infects humans anyway, there's an asymptomatic stage which means you don't know you've got the virus, but it's replicating in you. You just Mm -hmm. don't have symptoms yet. And so if you kiss someone in an asymptomatic stage, you don't know you have it. You're going to probably give it to whoever you kiss. Mm -hmm. Well, if you've been living with someone during the coronavirus (laughs) epidemic daily and you all of a sudden come down with the virus, your partner has probably already Mm -hmm. been infected. It's just a matter of time before they show the symptoms. Mm -hmm. In this case... We think the incubation period for coronavirus is three to five days. Mm-hmm. So my comment is, if you want to play it safe, don't kiss them, but it's probably too late by the time you have symptoms to worry about. It. Mm-hmm. And They're that's probably going to get it anyway.
0: And that's, um, that's the basis for you staying in. You know, I feel fine. I'm going to go down to the restaurant and see all my friends or go to the beach or whatever is... By the time you're feeling bad, it's it's too late. Too late. You've already mm-hmm. infected those. Mm-hmm.
1: You've probably and the other problem is that it doesn't mean you'll infect everyone, but you don't have to infect many to pass it on because it probably is exponential spread. Mm-hmm. But it's probably a little too late to worry about it at that stage because you don't know and it's already being spread through the system once you give it to them. So mm-hmm. it's best to, as you say, isolate yourself in this day and age and then you don't have to worry about giving right, it to someone right, else. Right. Except family members. <laughs>
0: okay, it's a little hard. So, um, real quickly, how do viruses differ from bacteria? Okay,
1: bacteria are much larger. You can see them with a light microscope. You don't need an expensive $30,000, $40,000, $100,000 microscope, mm-hmm. which is what electron microscope is. And most, but not all, vo- uh, bacteria are free living, which means they don't infect the interior at a part compartment of a cell and you say well they get into me no they don't really if you're lucky when you have an infection in your gi tract that bacterium technically is not inside you it's just surrounded by you because that's a hollow tube from your mouth out to your anus and so they're just living on the surface of your body but the interior surface rather than the external mm-hmm. so bacteria free living because almost all of them have all the metabolic machinery they need to survive. Mm-hmm. Now, you ask them, why do they infect you? Well, living on your body is sometimes a lot easier than trying to find nutrients in the soil. Mm-hmm. And so certain bacteria are adapted for soil growth. Some are adapted for living on your skin, which then are usually harmless unless you get a cut and it gets into your bloodstream, then it is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Or living in your GI tract. And by the way, those organisms that live there most of the time are doing you benefit right. because they're keeping the pathogens from up overgrowing. Mm-hmm. So don't be concerned you have bacteria in your GI tract. Just make sure you keep them in the GI tract <laughs> and they don't get to another part of your body. And they
0: don't get overloaded with
1: one over right. the other. And that's a- a Another main distinguishing point between virus and bacteria is something that people lose sight of and I want to emphasize, and that is There are many different antibiotics that we use to help people who have bacterial infections, and they should not be overused and not used when it's not appropriate, but they are efficacious in handling bacterial infections. There is not an antibiotic that I know of that can stop a viral infection. So unless the physician who's treating the patient happens to know that person also has a bacterial infection, when they have a virus infection, or might develop a bacterial infection secondary to the virus infection they should never prescribe an antibiotic for that patient
0: yeah well you're singing my song yeah <laughs> we think I'm sick and and unfortunately we have many providers that will go ahead and give a, a antibiotic and um, they probably don't need it that they feel better in five to seven days and it's not the antibiotic it's, it's the body taking care of the okay. The virus, And so we're getting a lot of resistant um, resistant bacteria. Antibiotics, kind of um, the easiest thing to say how antibiotics work on a bacteria is to disrupt the, the cell, the membrane of the cell, although they can also... That's banter, one of five so. major
1: ways. Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. is it stops RNA synthesis. There's mm-hmm. another class of antibiotics that prevents DNA synthesis, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which bacteria need. And uh, the f- f- fourth one is... They can prevent transport of essential compounds outside the cell, into the cell, which are necessary for um, growth. Mm-hmm. And a classic example, of that transport is not well at, applicable for antibiotics, but you want vitamins to get into your cells because you need vitamins. And mm-hmm. if there's an antibiotic, which I'm not aware of, mm-hmm. that prevents transport of vitamins, that would be mm-hmm. one way mm-hmm. to treat them.
0: But if there's no bacteria, then the antibiotic is just like it's, it's passing on through. Right. Bye bye. Or
1: affecting some of the bacteria that live in, in the, you the gut and knocking mm-hmm. them out, mm-hmm. which is dangerous yeah. too. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, so, how does the virus enter the
1: host? Okay. All viruses have to enter the host, as I told you initially, or they will not cause infection. For instance, if you take that coronavirus and put it on your table in your kitchen, nothing ever happens. no one touches it while it's in the active state, which probably is up until the droplet of water or whatever you spit out, if you happen to sneeze mm-hmm. or cough, dries out, and then within hours it won't be any good. Or if you happen to wash the surface with bleach or soap, you can inactivate the virus. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> to get into the, the whole cell, that's another story. And what usually happens, then, is there's a molecule on the surface of the virus. And in the case of the coronavirus, they always show that molecule in red, as it turns out, in all the images on TV when they're talking about Mm -hmm. it. It's sometimes known as a spike, too. But it's a protein that binds this membrane that surrounds the lipid membrane, or envelope I told you about, Mm -hmm. surrounds the viral particle. And it has to come in contact, then, with another protein that is projecting from the surface of your cell membrane or the host membrane, whatever it happens to be. It could be a mosquito cell, whatever. Mm -hmm. And when those two molecules come together, and by the way, if you ever run into it, the molecule on the virus is called a ligand, technically, Mm -hmm. thanks to the chemist, and the molecule Mm -hmm. on the host cell is called a receptor. Mm -hmm. When those two come together in the exterior part of the host cell, the (coughs) virus is immediately surrounded by part of the cell membrane of the host cell and internalized into the cytoplasm Mm -hmm. and once that happens now you got the virus inside but it's still not infectious while it's inside that membrane-bound compartment in the host cell it has to get out of that membrane-bound compartment and I'll cover that in a few minutes because that brings up the question why some people think chloroquine might, oh, okay. might, be, but has never been proved to be effective in preventing virus infections in multicellular organisms. So I'm not recommending you use it, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you some experimental results that virologists do that shows why that might be effective okay. in cell culture.
0: We want to know about that. So symptoms of, of the coronaviruses are similar, you said. Um, Maybe uh, sore throat, respiratory irritation, Um, not so much. Yeah, not so much.
1: Not running eyes. uh, Running nose
0: or whatever. That's a cold virus. There there is one
1: other new thing, though, that's come out with coronavirus that I think is important for some of us to remember, and that is two days ago I read something where people who have coronaviruses, 20% of them maybe, is that many. Lose the sense of smell and taste. I saw that, yeah. And that is unusual for a virus. Now, if you've got a long-term infection, that can happen, and you lose <laughs> appetite, too. Mm-hmm. But to lose smell and taste, at either before you know you're infected or immediately after infection, is something you should zero in on and definitely see, or sorry, call, because I don't see anymore. <laughs> call your physician and try and get an appointment. That I've never heard of for either colds or influenza. Right. At that early stage yeah. of infection. Yeah. Well,
0: so far I'm good. Yeah, good. <laughs> and you said um, malaise. Malaise. And, okay. Yeah.
1: And another big difference between influenza and coronavirus initially in anyway is fever. Mm-hmm. No one that I've heard of, although there are exceptions. And remember, anytime we tell you anything, I'm saying right now. Remember, there's 8 billion people on this planet, and we don't all respond to everything the same way. Mm -hmm. So when I say that most people with influenza get a high fever, and I'm talking 102 to 105, Mm -hmm. that isn't the case in the early stages of coronavirus. The fever is more like about 100, 100. One, maybe. Okay, so it's so a it's low a, grade. It's, a, it's low. a lower grade initially.
0: But sometimes bacterial
1: can be very and high. And that, that could cause, yeah, cause yeah. high too. So again, the problem with colds, and anything that causes a cold, and it doesn't have to be a virus, it can be a mm-hmm. suggested. but other you can things, things can cause it too, is that the symptoms are very similar. As a matter of fact, one of the things that makes it dangerous if there's ever a bioterrorism attack is trying to figure out if your patient has a cold. Or if it's a winter influenza, maybe, uh-huh. or was it in the spring anthrax. allergies? Yeah, right. Because anthrax begins with the pulmonary anthrax begins with the same symptoms that a head cold does. Uh-huh. But by the time you figure out it's anthrax, if you're not looking for it, it's too late to treat the patient. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They're going to die three days after they contract it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that's so, a big. So you got to gotta be do. careful with symptoms. Symptoms can be deceiving. Okay. And don't panic just because you have, you know, <coughs> a little fever, malaise, things like that. As a matter of fact, another thing that happens with influenza a lot is um, stiffness of muscles, like mm-hmm. hard to rotate the neck because mm-hmm. the muscles don't want to work that way mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. So the it, they can be confused in early stages, but that high fever is usually a okay. okay.
0: Okay. Um. Let's see. Influenza. The flu shot. I know um, I've heard people saying, well, um, we have lots and lots of deaths with influenza, and we've never sh- taken the measures that we are now. Of course, we have a vaccine for that.
1: Right. Okay. And we have a few antiviral drugs now, too.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even with the vaccine, it's hard to get people vaccinated.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I think that one of the things... I wish people were as excited about getting vaccines as they are getting antibiotics. Because mm-hmm. antibiotics are not as effective anymore as we think they are because mm-hmm. we've misused them and abuse them. So a lot of bacteria are resistant to, anab- to antibiotics we commonly use. Whereas a vaccine... To me, that is not curing a disease, it's preventing it. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Well, mm-hmm. vaccine is that ounce of prevention. You get a vaccine and you should never get that virus unless it's 50, 60 years after you had the vaccine. We're now learning as more mm-hmm. of our population is aging that a lot of the childhood viruses are infecting geriatric patients and there's several reasons for that one of them they'll always say is that the immune system's not working as well as when you're old as young and there's no doubt about that but another reason is that we didn't appreciate until we had an expanding geriatric population is you have to constantly be boosted Okay. And they used to give you booster shots, but they thought, oh, we don't need it for this. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out the booster shots for things like measles, mumps, and other things that children were getting. Pertussis or, and diphtheria. Well, those two. Well, you it should those? be boosted yeah. every 7 to yeah, 10 well, years the other one. but the yeah. natural occurring kind of viruses nasty. were boosted because children were getting the disease and you were around those children mm-hmm. and so you never got the disease but you boosted your immune system so you wouldn't get it okay. and then the third reason <coughs> that we think that uh, geriatric patients are getting the disease is we used to think that the cells of the immune system live forever or at least until you die. Mm-hmm. Uh. There's probably very few cells in our body that live forever. We're now learning, thanks to stem cells, that even in the brain and the heart, a small number of cells do divide throughout your life. turns out that the cells that are important for protecting you from diseases don't continue to divide. At the same rate and with deficiency, when you're old is when you're young. So even though you think you had immunity, you don't. And I'll give you an important example. Um, when they were afraid of the anthrax scare that happened uh, in early 2000, there was a question whether people should be vaccinated for <coughs> smallpox because they were afraid that smallpox bioterrorism might occur. And some people say, no, there's no need, because a lot of people, until 1977, were vaccinated with cowpox virus, which protected you, and I was one of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Me too. And so we wonder, are you protected? And the answer is, maybe. But if they offer another cowpox vaccine or something that's a little easier to take than the cowpox in particular, which is what they're supposed to be working on to prevent a bioterrorist act with cowpox or smallpox, sorry, then I would be the first one to line up for the vaccine because at my age, it's probably been 60-some years since I had that cowpox vaccine to protect me from smallpox. I'm not going to take a chance.
0: Mm-hmm. So the, the children today, or since 1977, have been no been vaccinated vaccine. at all, unless
1: they're in the military. During oh, the Iraq America. War, they did theoretically vaccinate GIs <coughs> for anthrax and smallpox with the cowpox vaccine. Now, I can't guarantee all of them were, and I know some argue they shouldn't be, and now they got away with it, but they supposedly did that because we weren't sure whether those pathogens would be sprayed over the battlefield by the enemy. One other last thing I want to say, and I might come back to it later if I say, vaccines are safe. There is not a shred of evidence in any current research that vaccines cause autism. And if you think they do, the two authors in England who published that work in the early 1980s, I think, have retracted their Mm -hmm. articles and no one believes it anymore. So get that vaccine and make sure your children are vaccinated too. That's right. What
0: exactly is a vaccine?
1: A vaccine is when we take either completely inactivated viral particles, since we're talking about that, or in the case of bacteria, totally inactivated bacteria as well. Although there's some more efficient ways of doing it, but that's how it all started. And we make a safe sterile solution with those, and we inject it into your muscle tissue. It doesn't go directly into the bloodstream; it goes into the muscle. And the reason it goes into the muscle is because it gives you long-term exposure to whatever the bacteria is. Because it's absorbed it. slowly from it the muscle. It absorbed slowly. Whereas if it gets into the venous blood system. You will completely remove that particle, or all those particles, even though there's billions of them, within a couple of days. Because mm-hmm. our immune system is so effective. So it's pumped into the, or injected into the muscle and slowly released. The immune system sees it as foreign, but it can't harm you because they inactivated it so that whatever causes the disease can't cause the disease. So it's okay, called yeah. inactivated. And by doing that, you build up the same kind of immunity that you would if you were exposed to the pathogen in an active form, but you don't get the disease. Now, some people say, for instance, I hear it all the time, including some of my family members, that when they got the influenza shot this year, they got flu. There's several explanations for that, too. One of them is that they might have been harboring a different or come in contact with another influenza strain. Remember, the vaccine each year only contains three, possibly four different strains of influenza, usually two or three of influenza A, because that's the most circulating. Whatever they think it's going to be. Back this (laughs) next year. Or B, well, there's more than four strains of those influenza viruses circulating in the world all the time. So even though you were vaccinated, if the vaccine was given to you in less, well, let's put it this way. If you were exposed to influenza A that was in the vaccine, but you were exposed before you got the vaccine, mm-hmm. you're going to get the disease because mm-hmm. your immune system takes 7 to 14 days to protect you. The virus inf- incubation barrier for influenza is three to five days. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to win that war. That's why you should get the vaccine as early in the fall as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. The other thing is I suggested, but want to emphasize is you may have been unlucky enough to get a vaccine that didn't contain the virus that you happen to be exposed to. Right, and they right. can't give you a vaccine for everything, which is why we're pushing for a universal vaccine. They're looking for an Vaccine that they can give you this year and protect you for years out mm-hmm. because the protein that they're giving you doesn't change in the virus like the two that we're using right now okay. for the vaccine. And you say, why don't they do it now? Because it's not as easy to do as we'd like, or we would have had that universal vaccine 20 years ago right. when we said we were working on right. it. Right,
0: right. And the vaccine for we don't do we have a vaccine for HIV? No, no. So we can't get that done either.
1: They're, working on, They're too, working on that too. They're working on it. But right now, you have to do by antiviral drugs, which are pretty potent drugs. Uh-huh, yeah. They keep you alive, but they are serious drugs.
0: and they worked a long time to get to get those, get those in the seventies. Took and a so decades. And a, a vaccine just takes a, a lot of a lot of time. I, I think when we talk about a, a few months, is unlikely. I do think that to have faith in science and scientists you know working all over the world i mean to try to come up with something maybe maybe it will be not years and years yeah. but you just can't flip a switch Correct. and get what you want
1: plus all these are different too and, and i don't want i don't want to overly disturb people but one reason we don't have a vaccine for hiv is because it's also an RNA virus. And all viruses mutate quickly, but Mm -hmm. so do people. We just don't see it because if one cell in your body mutates, it doesn't affect your whole body usually unless it's a Mm -hmm. Mm cancer-producing cell. Well, viruses have to mutate to evolve because we're constantly producing immune systems to fight them. So it's like a war, Mm -hmm. speaking of wars. It's the pathogen at war with our immune system. And by the way, this holds for the immune system of any animal. And so when the pathogen develops a new way to infect its host organism, the host organism immediately finds a way to defeat that pathogen. Mm -hmm. If it did not defeat it, you would wipe out the entire population of that animal with that pathogen. And that doesn't happen. Uh, So what happened is, As they try and come up with a vaccine for HIV, because inside your body alone, there's hundreds of thousands of mutated viruses by the time they detect the virus to begin with. So what kind of vaccine are you going to give that person to kill off the virus in their body? Mm -hmm. The sad thing, the good thing is most things don't, even though they do mutate, don't mutate as quickly as some RNA viruses. But remember, I said from the very beginning, coronavirus is an RNA virus. Mm -hmm. And what we're learning with the few studies that have already taken place, and and I say this guardedly because we don't really know what people in China and Europe have necessarily found yet, but we're finding that there are multiple mutated forms of this coronavirus in patients now. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's what causes all the trouble, but there's some speculation. Some people get it mild cases, and some people get severe enough mm-hmm. to kill, them. and then there's the intermediate. It might be because the variant some people get is very virulent or dangerous, and some people get the mild ones. There is another good explanation for that, that if we have time, we'll pick up later, though. Um, it may not be, there are definitely more than one variance circulating, but that may not be the difference between getting a mild case versus a severe case. Okay. There are other explanations for that right now. And unfortunately, some of them have to do with the way your own immune system reacts to the virus.
0: Right. Okay. So, 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 why is this one so? um, Why is it spreading so? Why is it so dangerous?
1: There's two or three good reasons. One, the most important is any time a virus jumps a host barrier, Mm -hmm. and what I mean by host barrier, if, if. I'll give you an example with herpes, since I'm so familiar with that one, although it holds for HIV, too, but with different hosts. There's a herpes herpes virus that infects chimpanzees called simian virus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rarely do humans get it, because the ligand on that virus doesn't always bind to a human cell. However, when it does bind to a human cell, it's almost always fatal and hence veterinarians in particular and people who keep, zookeepers who keep these monkeys have to be very careful they don't pick up simian virus. The rest of us have nothing to worry about because if it gets into the vet's blood and replicates, it doesn't transfer to us very easily as bystanders. And the same thing then happened with um, HIV. HIV was, uh, huh? I can't remember what exactly, the monkey species was that lived in Africa. But what happened is during European colonization of Africa, they used some of the African-American natives as porters to transport their mining and other things through the continent. But they didn't feed these porters very well. They didn't have mules and horses for this there at the time, or didn't want to use them. And so when they were free in the evening, instead of eating the food that they were given only, they went out and killed monkeys as a good source of protein. The problem is they didn't always process the meat properly. In other words, cooked it well enough. And some of the people who were eating these monkey, this monkey meat became infected with the virus. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately... <coughs> If things stayed the way they should have, nothing would have happened because it should not be able to replicate in humans. But I just told you, HIV has a very, 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 very high mutation rate. And without you having taken my immunology course, if I gave you the number, it wouldn't mean anything to you. But trust me, it has a very high mutation rate. And one of the things that happened is when the (coughs) virus got into the natives, it had switched from just a monkey virus to being able to infect humans as well okay. So using both simian virus and HIV as an example of a virus that causes severe damage, usually death, when they jump host barriers. in other words, go from the species that normally infects to one that's never infected. It's really severe. And it turns out then what's happening with COVID-2, is that we not only have a virus that's jumping barriers because we think that this virus was initiated in eating improperly cooked bats in China. We don't know for sure yet, but when we do the DNA studies, it's identical to some of the viruses that are pulling out of bats again. Bats are a great reservoir for viruses. Stay away from them. Okay. Anyway, So what makes it so dangerous? Well, not only did it jump a host barrier, because we had no reports of COVID-2 being found in any other human population before that, but the other problem is that it's highly infectious. So unlike the simian virus, which jumped host barriers, but isn't very infectious from person to person, Whereas HIV is, you see the difference. One person dies from being infected with simian virus, with HIV you can spread it to the whole entire human population, which is what's happening with COVID virus too. The other problem is not just that it's infectious though, it's also because there is no known natural immunity in humans to this virus. Because until it jumped, sometime within the last year or so, and we don't know when it jumped from the back to humans, but when it did, it's recent in human evolution, probably just a couple years. Well, none of us have ever been exposed to it, so right now there are eight being humans who can contract it. Whereas when we talk about something like... Uh, Common cold, even though you can get it multiple years because there's 150 different strains, mm-hmm. once you had the common, one particular common cold virus, you should not ever get it again the rest of your oh, life. Okay. So okay. we have no immunity to the new virus. Same way with HIV. When it jumped from the monkeys back in the 1800s to the African Americans, it remained isolated in Africa for a long time Bad because mm-hmm. we didn't have global travel. Okay. Now with global travel, and we think it got to America coming through the Caribbean, because Africans moved to the Caribbean islands and from there, or Americans visiting Africa brought it back to the Caribbean. Oh, for the HIV. I mean, okay. a, yeah, for HIV. So what I'm saying is there's no immunity in the human population now, except for the lucky, fortunate people who got covid two mm-hmm. recently and recovered. But mm-hmm. that is a small number of people right now. Right, right. So that's why it's such an epidemic right now. Right, right. And why and that, a vaccine is needed.
0: Right. And that the, um, the isolation and self, you know, just getting the workforce down, which uh, is ab- about the only preventative that's thing right. that we have. And unfortunately, you know, the economy and the livelihood of, of citizens around the world is is affected by it, but that's
1: what we... you know, That's, that's all we have. have. That, that's all we have. The only thing we have now, because there is no known antiviral drug for it yet, mm-hmm. and there is no vaccine. As a matter of fact, the way to think of self-isolation or shelter in place, mm-hmm. which are nicer terms than quarantine, but mm-hmm. quarantine is what the Chinese did in Wuhan. They just told those 11 million people, do not leave the city, and they didn't let anyone in. Mm-hmm. That's a quarantine. We're trying self Quarantine or isolation or shelter in place, because as a democracy, we don't want to tell someone. But what we're trying to do is set up a barrier. In other words, if you stay in your house, no matter how many people around you get COVID two or COVID nineteen disease, you won't, as long as they don't come within six that feet barrier of you. Is because that? you have that magic barrier around you. It's invisible, mm-hmm. but it's a barrier, and that right now is the only way we can keep you from getting the virus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but we hope that will change <laughs> and quickly, <laughs> and not just because of health reasons, but for the economy too. Uh-huh. The problem is, we got to solve the health problem before we can put people back to work, otherwise, they're going to come down with it and create more problems. More and, more and more problems, and then we will get to that number that right. die each year from it influenza. It could be like the influenza epidemic. 1917 and 1918, where we now think 50 to 100 million people died from the virus. Yeah, that's a lot of people.
0: Do you think that number was so high because it was a similar? It's situ- identical.
1: identical. What happened okay. is, it was a new variant of an influenza virus, and because, and at that time, I think there were less than. I remember when I went to college in the 60s, we were worried about the population, human globe. I mean, the earth reaching free being So in 1917, there had to be less than three being. I don't know mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. But what happened is a new virus, a new strain of regular old influenza circulated and it turns out we think that no one had antibody to it because no one had ever been infected by it. Mm-hmm. And then to compound that problem, we had the same problem we have today with this virus, that not only were no humans producing antibody to it until the But it was highly infectious. We all know flu is infectious. And in addition to that, (coughs) there was global travel. More so than normal because all the GIs were going back home. Mm -hmm. Wherever they went. It could have been back to different places in Europe, definitely to America. So we helped spread that virus rapidly. It would have eventually happened. Mm -hmm. But we accelerated it with global travel. Mm-hmm. Which is. And that's what we're experiencing with the COVID too. Mm-hmm. That with global travel, it makes no difference where it started. As long as one human picked it up and it can be transferred human to human, it now can cover the entire world in months. And we were lucky with the first SARS outbreak in 2002 and even the MERS outbreak. And in this, the SARS we think started in monkeys too, I mean, bats. But the MERS started in camels in Mm -hmm. the Middle East, so it makes no difference what animal it jumps from. If it jumps, we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And the way those two were stopped is it didn't transfer as fast Mm -hmm. as this one does, and we were able to isolate most of the people who came down with it either by preventing travel into the country or tell them stay put where they are. And that's Mm -hmm. why we're trying ring. It's sometimes called ring quarantine, too. You keep the person who's infected from getting out, but you keep the uninfected people from getting in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so same thing's happening. And just to let you know, there's one other little added to this. Ever since, well, for over 20 years now, we've been monitoring influenza Mm -hmm. virus globally. Not just to decide what vaccine to produce every year, but the other thing is we have an H1N1 that's circulating very, very slowly in South Vietnam and China, and it's found in the chickens they eat, <coughs> and and it's mutated. We think at least once, so it has jumped from the chickens to humans, just mm-hmm. like all influenza it has to jump from birds or swine to humans. Mm-hmm. What they're waiting for is for it to be spread among humans faster. And right now, turns out even family members rarely come down with it once someone picks it up. But we're deadly afraid of that if it ever becomes highly transmissible because then it becomes highly infectious and we'll have an influenza pandemic, which is what we thought 20 years ago our first pandemic would be, influenza again. hmm so this one really sent us on yeah, a trip a because we never expected a coronavirus being the next pandemic.
0: I th- I wonder if, now SARS was for Saudi Arabia. No,
1: SARS was from China too. Oh, or, was, okay. I shouldn't say China. I may be often, I don't want to give the China band. It came from Asia somewhere. And okay. I think it was okay. China, but it, okay. I'm not sure. And then the MERS, MERS was, was, Middle, was from Middle, Middle East. East. Okay. And
0: there was only... A few cases. A few cases that. that was a lucky one. It so wasn't I wonder if transmissible that Gave us kind of a false maybe confidence because I I have felt that it wouldn't it wouldn't come here, you know, because yeah. we're America for crying out loud.
1: Well, <laughs> as Fauci or someone said the other day, viruses know no barriers. That's right, <laughs> and they don't keep time anything. <laughs> they'll decide for us. And that's why we have to be alert. And the other thing that bothers me, having taught microbiology after the first anthrax scare, I started teaching a course called bioterrorism. And what people don't appreciate is there has been a complete collapse of public infrastructure, well, public health health infrastructure, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, that people were begging to be beefed up after the anthrax scare. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that people should keep in mind, is the same investigations the same surveillance that we're doing for influenza is applicable to bioterrorism. And every, the two go hand in hand, and we're not supporting either one of them well right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that we should, because I still think that there's a threat from bioterrorism, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone starts watching this coronavirus infection, and they'll think, hey...
0: We yeah, I could, really that. I could problems, say that.
1: Yeah, and this is easy. You just find a strain that no one's ever been, or genetically engineered, and you've got a whole new ballgame. Yeah. You were going to tell us about chloroquine. Okay. I can't guarantee you this, because I don't know who the people are who's saying that you can use chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, but there is some really good research that was done in the 70s and 80s <coughs> Where people were studying virus entry and then replication. And what they found out is that once the virus gets into the cell, the membrane, I'm only talking about the ones that have a lipid envelope Mm -hmm. around them, okay? That the soap can can destroy. That's soap, and by the way, it doesn't have to be antibiotic soap. You're better Mm -hmm. off not using antibiotic soap. Soap Soap. and um, this vigorous Mm washing. What they found out is that once it got in, it was inside another membrane, though, including its own membrane. So it wasn't infectious. And so when they studied this, what they found out is there's a small little compartment of membranes in animal cells called lysosomes. Mm -hmm. They're the little particle that releases enzymes that break down things inside the cell itself. But it's under the control of the cell, so it usually doesn't cause any damage. Well, when that membrane bound virus gets into the I mean into the compartment that surrounds it, it then fuses with the lysosome. And when the lysosome fuses with that compartment containing the virus, it releases enzymes that allow the viral particle to get in the cytoplasm. And once the particle is in the cytoplasm, it's free to replicate its own nucleic acid, be it RNA or DNA. And then the downside that happens is most viruses when they're replicating a cell end up killing the cell and that's how they get out. Okay. Okay. Now, when scientists saw that, for some reason they knew lysosomes were very low pH. So they, and they also knew if you put chloroquine into a cell, it raises the pH of the lysosomal compartment. So when that lysosome fuses with the vesicle that brought the virus in, it doesn't release the virus. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's the research, whoever it is that's trying to convince people chloroquine will prevent the virus from infecting you, is thinking about. But it has never been tested in humans So it should not be used at this point. It's better to use some of the known antiviral drugs. And there are a couple that you could try, but I don't know how effective it would be. But they're used against influenza now, which is also membrane-enveloped, lipid-enveloped RNA virus, and not chloroquine. And another reason you shouldn't use chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine is because (coughs) chloroquine is very highly used to this day, To prevent malaria. So we need it for people going to malaria-infected areas. And by the way, there's some really nasty side effects in chloroquine. Mm -hmm. And one of which is suicidal tendencies. Mm -hmm. You don't want to use hydroxychloroquine because it is very important to people with lupus Mm -hmm. and arthritis. Uh, rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. so let's not corner the market on drugs that people who are already sick with something else need let's use what we can and the third reason don't want to use it is because there was a couple in California Arizona who, Arizona, sorry, who thought they could find it themselves and they got the wrong combination of chloroquine Killed the husband last time I heard the woman's in intensive care. Mm-hmm. So if you get something like that, make sure you're using the crypt Right, right.
0: Yeah. I just looked to see how she was doing and there's been nothing, nothing. posted. And of course they're not, you know, releasing Don't, the name and that as
1: they say, only a foo treats himself. Oh, <laughs> i that's right. Let me say that again. <laughs> only a foo has him or herself as a physician. <laughs> right.
0: Let's see. Um, let's run through a couple of myths. The latest that's been circulating today, and now that we have some nice spring weather, finally, uh, that the warmer weather is going to eliminate the virus. Um, of course, uh, uh, somebody texted me this question this morning. A friend of mine, uh, brother or sister, whatever, said uh, it's not going to be as bad in Texas. Well, the Southern Hemisphere has been experiencing. They have summer Um and they're, they're still having trouble. And Texas and Florida has quite a few cases. So I also heard uh, a cure for um, blowing a hairdryer up your nose. But I don't think that's going to be um, helpful. Um, we talked about the the, the, um, the medication. Um, do you want to say something about uh, masks?
1: Mask. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, from everything that I gather... Using any mask other than an N ninety five is probably wasting your time and you don't want to use that because the healthcare professional people who are treating us need it. Mm -hmm. You can put a mask on that isn't N ninety five or even an N ninety five, but if you use the ones that are not N ninety five, they do not necessarily they don't filter out viruses. Mm -hmm. They might catch the droplet And stop that, but if the virus has a way of getting in, it's going to because it's not small enough to stop the virus. It's like when you use a strainer at home, depending on how big the openings are for the strainer, Mm -hmm. some things may go through anyway. So, the other reason you don't want to use a mask if you can avoid it is because... If you're not used to using a mask, it's probably going to irritate your face and you're going to be constantly touching your face. And the worst thing you can do besides keeping your hand no, not keeping your hands clean is touching your face constantly because the major way that you get that virus is through body contact of either droplets someone sneezed or coughed on or you touching them because you shook hands with them or you touched a piece of paper they touched immediately and now you wipe it on your face because you got a scratch and that's how you get or Mm -hmm. an itch and then you get the infection so the only time it's efficacious for most people to wear a mask is if you know you're sick with it Mm -hmm. and you're around people who aren't then you put it on to keep from exposing them but if you don't have an N95 you're going to cut down on the passage of transfer of virus from someone else to you, mm-hmm. but it's not guaranteed. So yeah. leave them for the health professionals so they can treat us. You
0: know. And I know that they, there's a thing with people sewing sewing masks, yeah. and and the one article in the uh, Time Chattanooga Times, was they were making them for the hospitals. And i i didn't I didn't call to clarify, but you know, probably not. Uh, that hospitals probably aren't using it, but I can see f- some comfort <clears throat> for a high-risk individual just to feel more comfortable with the mask and from then get home, you know, take yeah. it off. And anybody that's kind of Asian, you'll see them wearing masks all the time. So I don't, I don't know uh, that. But I do know I was fitted for an N95 mask when they first came out um, oh. when I was a, a, a nurse. And it, there's a very special way of... Making sure that there's no space, you know, it's just right there, clamped um, to your to your face. Um, trying to think, what else? as we I think we've covered all of them. Um, I think there's some I don't know if I'd call them myths, but more like um, uh, some hysteria uh, that this is going to ruin our econ- economy. Suicides will equal the deaths from the virus. <laughs> It's not as bad as other flus. It, of course, it's, we've talked about it, it's not done yet. We don't even know um, the cure is right around the corner. Um, and um, one of my personal favorites, because I hear this used in uh, regards to gun control, but there's um, there's more car deaths a year. Are we going to stop driving with the guns? It's you know people are killed with uh, guns and hammers and knives. I mean, as People are, um, in other words, if you want to kill someone, you can find something to kill them with. It's not necessarily a gun, but, but those, you know, the whole purpose of the podcast is to, for people to use their critical knowledge, knowledge right. and critical and wisdom, wisdom and critical thinking skills. No, we're not going to stop driving because of all the, uh, all the car deaths. We constantly try to make cars safer and traffic safer, and. Um, um, try to get on top of that and with, uh, you know, penalties for drinking and driving and, you know, all this. So it's, so it's not the same as huh. this. And then we were talking about guns and knives and hammers. I don't, I don't know the statistics on hammers, but, but um, uh, we have that funny little Second Amendment that's a, that causes a big problem, but you can usually only kill one person with a knife, not a whole classroom. I don't know how many people you can kill with a hammer. It, that seems to be tough. And also very personal, Yeah. you know. So, um, anyway, uh, you know, you hear it all the time, how to avoid getting the virus uh, and the CDC. It really mm-hmm. hasn't changed. It's not complicated.
1: No, it isn't. It's
0: inconvenient. Um, viruses on clothing, I meant to ask that. Yeah. I don't.
1: I, you know, and I have a little issue with what's being reported because I haven't been able to see the scientific articles, if they are, do exist even yet, or how they tested. But I have personal experience with herpes simplex virus, which is a very infectious organism a virus. Mm-hmm. And we were w- wondering in my lab one day that I ran, how serious should we be, how careful should we be handling this virus? So we put one drop of herpes simplex virus on a tabletop. That drop had over a million, probably close to a billion viral particles in it. Mm -hmm. And within minutes of that drop drying, we could not isolate a viable herpes. Really? So when people say that it can last, I think I heard one day that on cardboard it can last days. The only way I can see it, since it's a em, lipid envelope virus lasting days, is that that cardboard was kept wet for days. Okay. I think once it dries, or once it's treated with something like bleach, and I'm not suggesting you drink bleach, that'll kill okay. you faster than the virus mm-hmm. will. But when you wash surfaces with bleach or soap, then it's inactivated and it's not. Mm-hmm. A serious threat. So, how long will it last on your clothes? My comment is, as long as it's moist. Once it's, moist, it's okay. no longer moist, and even being moist isn't enough because sometimes, it ha- for instance, when you try and isolate a virus from a human, you don't put it in a drop of water and send it to the lab. You put it in special virus transport media that increases the likelihood that that virus will not be inactivated and By transport the time it gets to the lab. So I'm not saying you should be cavalier, but I don't think it's quite as dangerous in that respect. As long as it's a dry surface, I think you can pretty much guess because that lipid envelope that we want to kill with soap by washing our hands mm-hmm. is sensitive to drying out too. Okay. okay. And so once it dries out, I think within minutes after drying out, that virus is no longer a threat. Okay. And I want to address one other thing that you mentioned then, too, and that is that the treatment is just around the corner. It is not around the corner. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It takes, ask the drug companies when they say, we say, why does it cost so much? Because they have to go through some horrendous testing to convince the FDA that it's safe for human consumption. And even when they do that, errors are made in it Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that's right or wrong I'm just saying facts and I know they're talking about fast tracking things but even when they fast track new drugs and the vaccine it goes through a three-step stage that takes time the first one like if you heard last week they started a vaccine trial it has 48 maybe 50 people in it right now they're going to monitor those people for at least a month to make sure they don't have any serious side effects and to make sure they produce antibodies because if they don't produce antibodies, the vaccine is There's a no good use. Right. right? Because that's what protects you the rest of your life. Second thing is, then they go to a bigger clinical study where they enroll tens of thousands, of, if they can, hundreds of thousands of patients. Now, think about that. You've got to track 100,000 patients to see how they're responding to a vaccine. And by the way, the vaccine has to be administered at least twice, day zero and then two weeks later because the immune system needs to be boosted since we're not treating them the way nature infects you. So you're adding a couple more months to it and then you're adding and analyzing the data before you can and, and while you're doing all that, if it looks good in clinical two stages early, then the pharmaceutical companies start increasing the number of vaccines they can give. But that takes time, too. Remember, for every flu season, we start producing the vaccine in our summer, so it's ready by fall. It takes months to produce enough vaccine for 300 million people, and we're just producing it for our own country. We're talking about potentially Somebody vaccinating over seven billion people if we can to keep them from getting sick. Because if you don't make give immunity to everyone, that virus is going to constantly circulate just like measles did until we vaccinated Mm -hmm. everyone. Polio until we vaccinated Mm -hmm. everyone. Mm -hmm. It's no different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So don't count on a vaccine or a drug that will be efficacious and safe for at least twelve to sixteen months. Mm -hmm. And but
0: you know, hopefully, this barrier that we're building around ourselves will um,
1: slow down, slow it down, to and give us time able to take it. Uh, right, or well, they like to say on TV now, we want to flatten the curve. The so the curve. if you do get it, the hospitals can treat you.
0: Right, right. So there's, we don't want to be. We're not helpless. There's there's things that we can do. Right, um, but we need to. Proceed cautiously. I think
1: the best analogy, I don't like to talk about we're fighting a war because some of the things we have to do are like that. But it's not really a war per se. But there is one good thing, analogy, that is important. That is, during World War II anyway, I know more about that. Not that I was alive then what I read and stuff. (laughs) That the entire country came together to make... To make it successful. To battle. And that's what yeah. we need now. We can't think of ourselves. We've got to think of the people around us. Think of your own family. And if you want to protect them, then what you also have to do is protect your neighbors so they don't give it to your family too. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's also a good analogy for why everyone should have a vaccine. Because mm-hmm. all you're doing is making it safe for everyone. Mm-hmm. The people who don't get vaccinated are like the people who run through red lights in my opinion. Mm-hmm. They're putting people at risk when you run through a red light, and the reason most people obey that law, unless they just just some money at the time because they're distracted, is because it saves them as much as it saves your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Well, The same thing should be thought of with a vaccine. By vaccinating people, you prevent spread of serious illnesses. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about childhood Ill- sickness, illnesses, we think, oh well, you get over it. Turns out when they go back and study the old tables of mortality and morbidity, some of those old things, for instance, with uh, measles, a small number of people come down with something called <coughs> subacute sclerosis panencephalitis. Those children who developed that died by the age of 15 of something that's very similar to Alzheimer's. Oh, really? They thought I only one out of 100,000 or children came down with it. They went back and looked at tables, and now they're saying it might be as many as one out of ten thousand, or maybe even lower. Mm-hmm. One out of a thousand children sure came down with it. Mm-hmm. Remember, we got better diagnostic tools now, and we define things much more clearly. Mm-hmm. So, don't count on your child being safe after measles, mm-hmm. especially when a simple vaccine, which does not cause autism, will prevent it from happening. Right. 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 So, in summary, I guess what I want to say is we'll get through it like humans always do, but there's some simple guidelines, one of which is consult the CDC website. The biggest Mm -hmm. thing is keep your hands clean. If you think you're washing your hands enough, you probably aren't. When I was isolating viruses, I washed my hands 50 times or more a day in an Mm -hmm. 8-hour day, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and I never felt bored and I never got sick. <laughs> the other thing is stay away from sick people. Usually you can tell when someone's sick, stay away from them. Mm-hmm. The danger is you can't tell when people are what we call asymptomatic or in subclinical stages where they don't feel sick, they don't show symptoms, which is why we're saying shelter in place. Then mm-hmm. you don't have to worry if the person right. But if you are exposed to other people, like when you go grocery shopping or some other important thing that you have to do, like pick up meds at the pharmacy or mm-hmm. something, keep a distance of six feet or more from everyone you approach. Mm-hmm. Because we have studies that show that when you sneeze or cough, usually the droplets you release don't travel more than four to six feet. Okay. And that's why they say six feet.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Sorry. And the other thing is, don't believe everything you hear or see. As those saying goes, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is mm-hmm. too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Stick with what the CDC or your physician says or as you said in our initial talk, go with only science-based mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. If they're not a scientist that you trust, don't even listen to them. Mm-hmm. And they're out there. They're out talking something. Yeah. And don't gargle with bleach. Yeah, <laughs> clean surfaces with bleach. Well, but don't uh, even gargle. with
0: HIV, we would tell people to make a. I think it was. It was a nine to ten parts. It wasn't even pure yeah. bleach. And if, if you wash your hands with with pure bleach, they'll get dry. And
1: irritate it, and, and then you get your cracks, and then you're, yeah. As a matter of fact, I'll go back to when I wash my hands 50 to 60 times a day. I also, which I don't do now, apply hand cream constantly. Mm-hmm. And that's why, because my hands chapped all winter from washing my hands. Even though I was inside, they would chaff. And if you've got cracks in your skin, that's the best barrier to keep viruses out of your body and I appreciate that, so I constantly have my hands rubbing them. And the best way to apply hand cream, by the way, for chapped hands, is while your hands are damp. Right. It you penetrates your skin and makes them it's soft mm-hmm. much better. So don't completely dry your hand and then put the cream on. Right. You can do that, but wait until you dry them, but you can still tell mm-hmm. there's a little film of water, and then put the hand cream on and you'll be much safer
0: see all kinds of beauty tips with my podcast as well. Well, thank you so much, John. I I hope this has given people a greater understanding of why we do the things that we do. you know, we live in a time of misinformation and discord uh, that certainly isn't improved by a crisis. The purpose of this podcast has always been to give good information and foster knowledge of policy and, more recently, science. So this is the second science, very very much science-based um, podcast. And I know that um, it's, it's challenging to get the information. And so uh, feel free to... Um, come back to this um, podcast. I always uh, advise the, the older people to talk to your children, grandchildren about science <laughs> because they know it and they remember it where sometimes things get a little dusty in, in our brains. This is all to develop critical thinking skills in order to make good decisions about your life and the lives of the people you care about uh, in your family and, and communities. So I think um even though i a nurse and I knew a lot of this information, um, I looked up uh, viruses and read more about the Spanish flu and uh, the plague and all that stuff. And it's just, I mean, it's really interesting. I, I don't think you have to be a medical person or a scientist to appreciate what other people uh, went through. I think you might have a little bit more of a sense of camaraderie with uh, the, our ancestors, which is always good. Um, and then, so, so search that from good websites the CDC has a great website, scientists. Please fact check. Again, if something sounds funny, we check it. Um, and, and then, you know, my other bigaboo is um, if somebody says this whole thing is just made up, I'm always like, really? You got the whole world trying to fool you? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a good example of that. How could that possibly be? So move on. Move on. It's easier to brush all this is all nothing uh, than to do the work. So
1: please do the work. Agree. Okay. And thanks for inviting me. Oh, yeah, you
0: bet. Bye-bye. Bye.